Hey everyone, Rich here. I recently traveled overseas for a little R&R. When you spend a little time in airports, you can't help but notice just how much everything is based on the concept of controlled access. Hang around too long in your car at the drop-off or pickup point, and airport security will be on your case. Want to be with your loved ones at the gate to wish them safe travels? Sorry, that requires a valid boarding pass. I saw one lady stopped by a TSA official at the security checkpoint. Why? Because she had a bottle of honey. It was more than 3.4 ounces, but lucky for her, she was given a choice. Throw the honey in the trash and proceed to the gate, or turn around and miss your flight. So, she said goodbye to the honey. Every square foot of space on airport grounds is all about permissions. Everywhere you look, there are doors inside the concourse restricted to authorized personnel. If you have the proper badge, you're in the club. And speaking of clubs, who doesn't appreciate a nice airport lounge? They serve as a pleasant respite from the noise and chaos of the concourse. But if you want access to the free buffet and all the other delightful amenities, you'll need a special pass. I even saw one traveler get kicked out of a cafe because he was finished eating. As long as you're enjoying that burger, you're good. Want to chill out afterwards and crack open the laptop? Sorry, your time is up. At one point, I needed to hop on a bus to transfer from one terminal to another to catch my next flight. I started to walk outside to get on the bus and an airport official yelled at me hey. and told me to get back inside. I didn't have permission, at least yet. Even when you successfully get past the security checkpoint, there's always a chance you might get screened again. I know, because it happened to me at the gate in one airport twice. Today's airport is one giant collection of controlled access points. To get where you need to go is all about permissions. And if there's someone who knows a thing or two about permissions, it's our guest, Jake Mashenko. After cutting his teeth in engineering roles at Amazon and Google, Jake paved his way to become an authorization pioneer. In other words, he now dedicates his life to advancing the technology behind permissions management. I have to admit, when it comes to the technical side of things, a lot of what Jake talks about is above my head. But if at any point your brain starts to hurt, just imagine the airport. You're listening to Privacy Files. This episode is brought to you by Anonymy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app. And Sudo Platform, the cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating identity protection solutions into their software. And have you heard about the MySudo web browser extension? Breaking your online data trail just got way easier. To learn more, visit mysudo.com. That's mysudo.com. Jake, welcome to Privacy Files. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is an area I'm going to admit I don't know a whole lot about, so I hope it doesn't get too technical, but to the best of your ability, if we can keep it in, at least in a range where I can understand it, I think that'd be helpful for the audience. Cool. I'll try to keep it light. Yes, sir. Okay. So you are the co-founder and CEO at AuthZ, and that's in the IAM or in, in identity and access management space, and you say more to the AM side. Yeah. At AuthZ, we're helping companies write and deploy their last permission system ever. So a lot of times companies are building authorization into their applications and they're building it in such a way where it's very handwritten, very custom hand-rolled. 
I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, but don't hand roll or don't roll your own security. Well, yes. this very much falls into that category. You don't want to be doing your own, writing your own permissions management code. It's very sensitive. It's a great place to accidentally introduce a security flaw or a vulnerability. It's tricky code and it's hard to scale. So this is one of those places where you should definitely depend on a partner or a provider such as ourselves. So I guess a way to look at it would be, this is one of those fields where you'd rather leave that to a professional who does that full time. Because if you're a developer on the corporate side, you might be doing a little bit of this for a while, but then you shift to a different project. It's not something you're doing all the time. So am I kind of on the right track? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen a trend going back decades now where companies are trying to bring in partners for things that aren't their core competency, right? If you sell widgets on the web, the last thing you want to do is be writing authorization code or permissions code for your application and then potentially leaking your user's data when you introduce a security flaw. So it's like the same way everybody went through their cloud journey where they said, you know what, maybe we're not the best people to rack and stack these servers and power them on and host our applications. We should punt that off to Amazon or Google or Microsoft. The same thing applies to other parts of your software that's not your, your core business proposition, your core competency. So when you say permissions management, can you walk through maybe an example or two of what that actually looks like in practice? Oh, yeah, of course. Once you see it, once you know what to look for, permissions are everywhere. So everybody has a bank account, and I'm sure you've got an online login to your bank account. And having that login gives you specific rights to that account. But sometimes people also have bank accounts that they share with a spouse, or maybe they've shared the bank account with their bookkeeper to be able to do their taxes. And you don't necessarily give all the same rights to those other entities that are involved in your bank account that you retain for yourself as the account owner. And you can see this everywhere, right? Like another example that everyone can relate to is Google Docs. When you go into a document in Google, there's a big blue share button in the corner. And when you click that share button, it allows you to bring in other people to that document and give them viewer access or give them commenter access or give them full editor access. And that's just an example of permissions that everybody has probably experienced. But there's a really fun one that maybe fewer people have experienced, but if you're actually sending an email, like a Google email, and you put a link to a document, or the person that you're sending it to doesn't have access to that document, Google will actually warn you, hey, this person doesn't have access to this thing. Do you want to share it with them right now? And that's an example of all of the applications at Google working together on permissions collaboratively to make sure that you're having the best experience possible as a user. Yeah, it reminds me of like a prompt you would see in Dropbox too or SharePoint if you're maybe sharing a file with somebody external of your organization. Yeah, I mean, that's like super critical to maintaining privacy and to maintaining control and governance over your own data and information about yourself, which is so critical to how we live our lives these days. And so you had engineering roles in the past at Amazon and Google. My guess is that those stints probably played a significant role in developing your interest for this topic overall. Yeah. Amazon and Google were definitely my largest, my fang experience, if you will. And it was there that I learned about how to build large services and how to focus on the developer. So at Google specifically, I was on the API's backend team working on developer tools. I didn't really encounter this problem until we started our first company. So our current CTO and I founded a company in the past 
And that company was called DevTable. We did an online web integrated development environment. So a text editor for code that lived on the internet. But think of it like Google Docs, but for programming. And that never really went anywhere. But as part of that, we developed a product called Quay, which was big early in the containerization, the Docker wave that happened a while ago. And as part of Quay, we had this problem, right? We had to put permissions into our app and we did what everybody does and we hand wrote it. We wrote some code down and we were off to the races, but then the code was always brittle. It was hard to scale. And it was always something where the next customer feature request was always impacting permissions in some way or another. So it was this thing that we were like, man, why do we invest so much time in this code when it's not the thing that people really come to us for? Are there any other uh, trouble spots when it comes to developing your own permissions code from, you mentioned it's being brittle, hard to scale. I would imagine too, you probably can overlook some easy vulnerabilities in the system as well. Yeah, absolutely. OWASP counts broken access control as the number one security vulnerability on their OWASP top 10. So broken access control would be examples of when like, Somebody has access to something that they shouldn't, right? You upload a document and then somebody else just discovers it. They stumble upon it and then they get access to your critical data. And maybe that's really sensitive information like your mortgage payment history or your private social security number and whatnot. So like I said, this is the number one flaw that applications have according to OWASP in the last time they published their list, which was 2021. Got it. So I imagine if you're doing your own code, you're probably also an easy target then for hackers. Yeah. And you're doing it and it's not your area of expertise, right? So you want to write the domino delivery tracker. You don't want to have to write this tricky permissions code for something. It's often the last thing that developers think to put in their app, right? They write the core functionality, the thing that they're excited about. They get everything going. And then before they ship it, they're like, oh, wait, shoot, we need to add permissions or else everyone's going to see everybody else's pizza orders. So then they kind of bolt it on at the last minute and don't give it really the amount of attention that it deserves. Now, Quay, and and that's how you pronounce it, correct? Quay? Yep. And so it was sold several times and then finally acquired by IBM. Yeah, you can still buy it from IBM today, which always, you know, it makes me smile because we went from a two-person company to being part of this multi-hundred thousand person behemoth. But yeah, you can still buy it today. And then, of course, being in a company of, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of employees, you probably were thinking to yourself, I'm not sure if this is a great fit for me. And so then that's when you found it off Zed. That's right. Yeah. If you've got the entrepreneurial spirit and you've got the entrepreneurial bug, it's really hard to sometimes find a home for yourself at those larger organizations. Now, before we get into some of the details on Authset, I see a lot of in your bio and, and some of the speaking engagements that you've done, you refer to this term cloud native. Maybe you can talk a little bit about exactly what that is versus just cloud-based. Yeah, cloud native, really a term to describe apps that were created after the advent of the cloud. Prior to that, it was all about digital transformation, right? You had these huge companies with massive server farms and mainframes and all these applications that were written against this model where they would control their own hardware and they would deploy it on their own footprint with their own people. And then when the cloud came around, people started to think about like, well, there's probably a better way, right? Now that we've outsourced the racking and stacking and power and cooling for these servers, are there other things that we can outsource? Are there other ways that we can 
accelerate our application development in such a way that we let the experts handle their area of expertise. And that's when we started to see things like, I, I guess the first higher level cloud service that comes to mind when I think of it was like S3, AWS is S3. So they basically took commodity servers the same way anybody could, and they turned it into this massive distributed key value store where 99% of companies that you interact with today will have some form of S3 presence, some form of S3 bucket to store and serve these larger digital assets. So it sounds like in a cloud native setup, the security is shared both between the cloud provider as well as the application owner? The security is shared, but there's definitely a clear demarcation, right? So when you think about what your cloud provider does in terms of securing your footprint, they're making sure that nobody is getting access to the servers themselves. They're making sure that if you're the subject of a distributed denial of service, a DDoS attack, that they're able to help you mitigate and shed that load. But when you get to the application itself, there's a very clear boundary. Once you're into the application, that's your responsibility. Let's take a quick break for this message from our sponsor. Hey man, so I've been swiping lately. Uh-huh. And there's this Russian model I matched with. Her name's Natasha. Okay. And we've been chatting for a while. She said she wants to come see me, but she said she needs some crypto for her plane ticket to come. Wait, wait, wait. Cri- crypto and a plane ticket? Uh, you're probably getting catfished, man. No way. Dude, she totally wants me. I, I mean, we'll see. Hey, I just got a notification. She said... Hold on one sec. She said that she wants to keep chatting off the app. What do you think? Uh, I don't know, man. I just use my pseudo. You sure? Yeah, man. Stay safe. Use my pseudo. Don't let privacy concerns dampen your spirit of love. Download MySudo now at mysudo.com and date with confidence. Secure love is in the air. Stay private. So I guess segueing now into Authset, you mentioned the term spice DB. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and kind of what you're doing in general at Authset. Yeah. So Authset is selling authorization services to companies to get them out of the business of, of hand rolling this own code. We're inspired by Google's Zanzibar paper. So in 2019, Google released a paper called Zanzibar, obviously enough. And in that paper, they describe how Google does all of their authorization and all of their permissions internally across all of their services and their entire application suite. And they were very detailed, right? They said, this is the model. This is the programming model. This is why it's good. This is why it's secure. And this is how we scale it. And so I looked at, you know, we were sitting at IBM at the time, but I looked at Joey, who's our co-founder, and I said, hey, man, this solves a problem that we've been running into over and over and over again. Let's take this paper, because the paper had no implementation. You can't buy it from Google. So I said, let's take this paper and let's turn it into a business And let's bring this technology, let's bring this amazing ability to get out of the business of writing permissions, let's bring it to the rest of the world. And we've been kind of executing that mission ever since. Wow. But I imagine selling infrastructure to enterprises is no easy task, right? My whole career has been in the B2B space. And so how do you overcome some of those challenges? Do you have any challenges that you're referring to specifically? Because I could talk about challenges all day. (laughs) I guess the first thing is just getting someone's attention because a lot of times people have got their head down and they're busy doing what they're doing. And they're like, well, I've got a solution today. 
maybe it's not great, but nothing bad has happened. So we just keep plugging away, right? It's like insurance for your home or for your car. You know, you don't really think about it until something bad happens. And then you go check the policy book to see if you're covered on all of these items, right? Yeah, I don't think we sell insurance. I think what we're doing is we're more of the like selling shovels, if you've heard that metaphor. Sure. In this case, people are coming to us because of our association with Google Zanzibar. So we're very transparent that we were inspired by Zanzibar. So people, developers or product managers within organizations, they're struggling with the same problem, right? And just like us, they're thinking there's got to be a better way. And so they hear about this Zanzibar paper. Maybe they read it themselves or saw it on Hacker News or hear about it from a friend. They map it back to their problem as well, the same way we did and said, yeah, that sounds like it could do good things for me. And so then they go and look for a provider and that's when they find us. So SpiceDB is our open source implementation of Zanzibar. So I think another critical insight is that you really need to be open source in this business because no one wants to trust such a critical key component of their infrastructure and put themselves in a position where they're sort of beholden to whatever price you set at every yearly renewal. So they want to have the warm fuzzies that there's an open source solution to fall back on. And so they go looking for an open source Zanzibar and we're the premier open source inspired Zanzibar permission system. So do you have businesses reaching out to you when something terrible happened or are they just being proactive or is it just a mix? We have never had anyone reach out to us when something terrible has happened. So it's almost always they're being proactive. They're being slowed down. Their business could be executing faster. They could be doing more in their core competency. And so then they reach out and they say, we know there's a better way. We think you're the better way. Prove it. Show us. And that's how our engagement usually starts. Can you talk about maybe any breaches or, I guess, uh, compromises in enterprise systems that were related to permissions? Maybe you can speak to that at all. Yeah. I mean, I know one off the top of my head, it's debatable. It's not really debatable. They call themselves a startup, but they are an enterprise, fastest growing business of all time. But OpenAI had a breach where users were able to see each other's uh, transcripts, their AI chat transcripts. And <laughs> I don't know if you use ChatGPT, but people put some pretty wacky stuff in there and you could end up coming away with a pretty pretty bad impression of somebody or somebody could leak some crazy details when they're asking, how do I burn my house down for insurance money or something, right? <laughs> like you could come away with, it's like your Google history. You don't want people prying around in that. So that was definitely a case of broken access control where people could see each other's data. Sure. Yeah, no doubt. And then the other issue too, I've seen whether it's permissions or not, the uh, the issue around breaches that take place, but internally, nobody really knows about it for possibly days, weeks, or longer. And that's a really scary scenario, I would imagine. Yeah, the silent breaches are definitely, everyone who runs an internet-facing application or program, those are definitely the scariest things, right? Because you could be being exploited for who knows how long and in who knows what way. One of the most common security flaws that companies have is that they set their S3 bucket to public. And uh, AWS helps with this nowadays. They don't make it quite so easy to set it public or they give you a bunch of warnings. But you can build the most secure application in front of an insecure infrastructure and people can still get the keys to the kingdom. And maybe nobody discovers it for months or years, but when they do, there's going to be nothing linking you back or letting you know that that's happening because that's directly between the attacker and the cloud provider and you and your infrastructure are not even in the call path. 
Where do you think the permissions management space is headed? Since you've definitely been involved in this, innovating these tools for quite a while now. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of tools and vendors in this space and it's broken down generally. I see it in like two main sections. So there's our section, which is helping people write better applications. And then there's sort of the like workforce authorization. If you're an infrastructure engineer at a bank, how do you make sure that you're not leaking your credentials and giving people access to all of the bank accounts in the world? And that's like a different side of the house. That's more of the traditional IAM or uh, IGA as they call it. But yeah, in this space, I think the application authorization is pretty wide open. There isn't really like an incumbent in this space yet. Um, We're obviously hoping to become that incumbent. I think as time goes on, you'll see this space get a line item in companies' budgets. And then you'll see companies start to talk about what they're doing around authorization in order to make sure that you as a consumer, that your data is protected. Being able to read the Google Zanzibar paper, while it's it's highly technical and it's aimed toward engineers, gives me the warm fuzzies that Google is taking access control and not having broken access control very seriously, and they're investing heavily in that area. Yeah, corporate security and compliance is no easy job for sure. Yeah, we have Colin internally who comes on the podcast once in a while from our corporate security and compliance team. And I mean, it's just a, it's a constant daily education trying to keep up on all the changes and the bad actors. They seem like they don't sleep. Yeah, we had a, uh, as part of our journey of Quay eventually ending up at IBM, the first company that we sold it to, I guess the only time we sold it directly was to a company called CoreOS. And CoreOS's mission was to secure the internet, which is a very common, broad mission. But what their fundamental, or what our, right, we became a critical part of that story, but what our fundamental insight was, was that you can automate security exploits. Once you find a security exploit, it can be automated and you can try the same exploit all over the place. But the mitigations for these exploits were often manual. And so CoreOS's whole deal was, let's automate updating software such that the mitigations become as automated as the exploits themselves. And that was kind of the fundamental thesis for how we were helping to secure the internet. Well, that's scary. Any other items related to said you wanted to cover? Not in particular, right? If this sounds like something that's interesting, or if you happen to be running a company, you, the listener, happen to be running a company or running a team that's doing authorization, we'd be happy to chat with you about what you're doing. Whether you think that we might be a good fit or not, we just always want to talk to more people. And to that end, we have a special page, authzed.com slash podcast, where people can go and they can set up a meeting with one of us just to talk about what they're doing and what they're maybe worried about and what could they could improve on. And with your experience now working in the corporate security space, enterprise, permissions, on and on and on, has it made you more of a privacy conscious person in your personal life? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I find the amount of data that can be put together about any individual and their habits and the tracking and everything. I find that amount of data to be shocking. We're only seeing the ability to automate and collect that data expand as time goes on. So I've definitely started personally reading like privacy policies when I sign up for something, right? Where is my data going? What are they going to do with it? I've definitely, like I say, knowing how Google is handling permissions internally gives me confidence that my data is not going to end up leaked to everyone all across the internet when I use their products. And I think more companies could be more security forward when they talk about what they're doing to protect our privacy and to protect our data. 
on the B2B side, which I know you have a lot of experience in, on the B2B side, we have products like Security Scorecard, and we've got SOC 2 for making sure that these businesses are going to handle our business data correctly. But as consumers, we really aren't armed with those same kinds of tools to make sure that our data is secure and safe. Let's take a quick break for this message from our sponsor. Picture this. You are a key decision maker at your credit union. Your tellers are tired of the lengthy KYC process, fraud is a constant worry, and onboarding new members feels like a marathon. But what if there was a way to streamline it all? Enter the Pseudo Platform. Our reusable credential technology transforms the traditional KYC process, reduces fraud, strengthens communication security, and streamlines member onboarding. With Pseudo Platform, you can prevent fraud, save time, and create secure digital identities. And the best part? It's built right into your credit union's app. This is more than innovation. It's a commitment to providing your members a rewarding experience. We're live and ready to redefine how you do business. Don't wait. Give your credit union the upgrade it deserves. Identify any member in any channel at any time, all while improving convenience and reducing fraud. To learn more, contact us at pseudoplatform.com. That's pseudoplatform.com. Do you have any advice, let's say, if I'm, because just as an individual consumer, I have lots of relationships with different online businesses. Are there some things that I should look for? Any red flags if I'm thinking about exposure of my data to bad actors or whatever might happen in the future? I mean, I know these privacy policies are so detailed. Most of us just click accept. But is there anything that I should be looking for that's easy to spot? Or does it just require a lot of work? Oh, what are the easy things to spot? When someone that you're developing a relationship with wants to develop a relationship on your behalf with someone else, that's often a huge security hole. I went through and shut down, I mean, I won't name them, but I went through and shut down the like personal finance tools that I was using that had access to my bank accounts. Because I was like, wait a minute, they can pretend to be me and go and log into my bank account and do whatever they want. And the only thing that's stopping them from doing that is something that says, well, we won't, right? But if an attacker gets access to that data, that's potentially a nightmare. So whenever you've got those sort of like back-end to back-end long-lived relationships, that's something I would think about and be conscious of. If you've ever seen, this isn't really an issue so much anymore. We've fixed a lot of it as an industry, but like bad password policies or like type in your email and we'll email your password back to you. And you're like, wait a minute. Right. Like, you know, you're not supposed to have it. That's supposed to be salted and hashed on your servers. Right. That's just not that's not how this is supposed to work. So bad password policies. I use one password and do site specific passwords for absolutely everything. One password is super nice because it's integrated with the like, have I been pwned service? And it will tell you if any of your passwords have been leaked according to cross-referencing with hashes and things like that. But just be conscious of who you're giving your data to. And how valuable it would be for you to not have that end up on the internet. And the more critical it is, you should definitely have a more discerning eye when you think about who you're giving that data to and building relationships with. Yeah, the third-party relationships is a big one. We did a episode last year, um, and I see it's tax season again, so you're going to see some of these articles come up where Facebook or the Metapixel was sending data from some of the more popular tax software companies and they were sharing very sensitive financial information back to meta 
And it's just like, I don't, I'm sure it was buried somewhere in a privacy policy that I just checked. Okay. Accept. But that's the kind of stuff I want to know up front. I don't want people knowing where I live, what my income is and my tax situation and on and on. Yeah. Sometimes you think as you establish that relationship, you think, well, they definitely wouldn't do that, right? Because it would just erode trust and no one would ever use them again if they caught doing that. And then sure enough, you find out that they're passing this data on because the data is so valuable. It's worth so much money to companies to know what it is that you like and what your financial situation is and where you spend money and how you spend your time. So the data just becomes so valuable that just sitting on the data becomes like a, an alluring prospect, right? Like we've got the data, how can we monetize it? So you can never really trust a corporate entity to do the right thing unless it's codified into law or unless it's written into their privacy policy. Yeah. And it's so complicated unless you're really on top of it. It's hard to feel confident that you know all the loopholes and what your exposure is. And I I was going to ask you here in just a little bit about a personal story, maybe related to a data breach. I'm going to go into detail in a subsequent episode, but just last month I had my uh, frequent flyer account for an airline I won't name. Somebody stole a bunch of miles to book a one-way trip. And after going through a bunch of effort, right, to get help with their customer service department, they finally sent me a letter and basically said, hey, everything's okay. We're going to give you your miles back as a courtesy, but in the future, this is what you need to do. And it was basically, it was a kind of a passive aggressive tone in the sense that they were blaming me for the breach. And I just thought that was crazy. It's the old, we've investigated ourselves and we found that we did nothing wrong. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I have a similar story. I was actually sitting on the tarmac in an airplane when I started getting notifications that one of my accounts had been compromised. And I'm sitting there and the flight attendants are saying, turn your phones off, put them into airplane mode. And I'm like actively battling this hacker who's trying to steal my account before I'm up in the air for several hours and can't do anything about it, which is like kind of a nightmare scenario, right? Like, you know, something bad is happening to you, but you're trapped and you can't do anything about it. I didn't end up getting it resolved. And eventually that company reached back out to me and they said, well, I guess it turns out you don't live in Lithuania and you weren't requesting a ride. So uh, you're not liable for anything that happened. But I was just like, no apology, no explanation, no tips about how to spiff up the security on my account, which I always keep two factor on on all my accounts and do all the recommendations and everything. But it was just like, a, well, this thing happened to you and now it's over. And I was just like kind of a scary wake up call. Yeah, it is. I think the good news is, is I talk to people and I read some of the research that's coming out as of late, people are starting to think about security and privacy more before they enter into a relationship with a company. And I think that's a good thing is people are becoming more aware of just how exposed they can be taken for granted that everybody's got your back. And that's just not always the case. You're talking about two-factor authentication, any recommendations you would have for an individual who is thinking about, you know, where do I start just to kind of sort of go down that road to become more private and protect my personal data. Yeah. I mean, it's just the things that we've talked about. There's the new passport support where you can uh, use passports on a lot of websites, which cryptographically lock your identity down to the device. Anything that you can do like that. The old version of that was like the YubiKeys. You've got the biometric stuff on the Macs. 
anything that you can do to adopt those kinds of things rather than just have a password. But if you do have to have a password, then obviously make it long and hard to guess, lots of entropy, lots of randomness. Ideally, let a program generate it for you. Like that's something that 1Password does, for example. Just make it as hard as possible for someone to guess or to stumble upon or to exploit a commonality, right? Like if you use the same password everywhere, if one of the sites that you use gets hacked, now you've got to go change your password on all the sites. But if you're using a different password, a randomly generated password for every site, then you only have to update the ones that were breached, the ones that were affected. It's really like a you pay a little bit up front, but you get peace of mind on the other side when something bad does happen. Definitely. Yeah, good advice. Jake, as we wrap up, I guess if you're thinking about the types of customers that you would be looking to do business with as a particular target, who would be that person you think would you would be able to best help in uh, giving them a permissions management tool to run their enterprise? Yeah. If you run a product, if you run a, a website or something that's consumer facing over the internet, and you know the terms ABAC and RBAC and RBAC, you probably want to give us a call because we're in that space and we can definitely help you. We're generally selling to slightly larger companies who have had some of the scale challenges. We do call a few startups customers, so they do exist. And yeah, product managers and like architects are generally the people who are thinking forward about how to sort of eliminate this whole class of security flaws and set themselves up for permission success moving forward. Awesome. And it's authz.com, A-U-T-H-Z-E-D. That's right. Awesome. Anything else? Any words of wisdom before we go? No, it was great being on the show. Thanks for having me. Hope this was insightful for your listeners. Yeah, definitely. It's always good to get different perspectives. And I think one area that we've been lacking is just from that enterprise point of view, all of these items intersect at some point between the individual and the enterprise. So I think it is good to get that additional data point. So yeah, thank you so much for your time, Jake, and good luck to you. It sounds like you're doing some great stuff. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Privacy Files. In our next episode, it's more true crime. With Valentine's Day quickly approaching, it's time to revisit the bizarre and sometimes dangerous world of dating apps. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right.